0: We care about our land more than somebody down in Ottawa. A land code puts the First Nation into the power of government. The biggest point for me is your ability to protect your reserves lands. Former chief of our community had the vision to sign uh, and the guts to sign that framework agreement. Business at the pace of business. I think it just proves that First Nations lands management really is working. The good thing about land code, we don't have to sell it. It sells itself.
1: And joining me now from Seabird Island First Nation is the band's executive director, Jason Campbell. Jason, great to have you on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I know we met briefly in Winnipeg a couple of years ago, and I was struck by your enthusiasm over the land code. Can you take me back and give me a little history of how it all started in your community?
0: Well, uh, it was, you know, like in most communities, uh, it's presented to us from probably some of the the local directors, uh, the British Columbia directors on the board of Lands Advisory Board uh, to our community and how we can have more control over the protection of our community and uh, allow us to make moves from an economic development standpoint at the speed of business, as opposed to having to wait for Um, Ottawa or ISC to give us approvals on things. As long as we have our own protections in place, we're able to, to, you know, take back that control. So that's how it started. And uh, as in most communities, there's a community-wide information sessions that go on and they did um, I think our community is one of the first where they would do family group uh, conferences where staff from the LABRC would come into large family groups and they would have um, you know Q&A's on land code and you know so they can discuss the pros and cons and and then the the eventual referendum.
1: Cool we'll talk about the ratification process in a bit but maybe uh, how about we backtrack a little bit and have you tell us about the community how many homes how many folks are living there?
0: Uh, those those numbers uh, shift and change, but we have approximately anywhere from a thousand to eleven 1, hundred uh, band members, um, community members. Uh, that the number increases. Um, you know, we got about twelve hundred people that live on reserve in the in the band homes. I don't have an exact number on the band homes, um, but uh,
1: it'd be a couple hundred. I'm guessing a eh? yeah, that kind easily of a couple hundred.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, we're the second second largest. Um, Second largest by population uh, of of the of the communities in the Stolo territory, and we're the largest by by area uh, of the size of the reserve, in in again in Stolo territory. Very small compared to the the prairies or other areas of Canada, but but large in comparison with uh, with Stolo territory communities.
1: As you look at your land code, uh, are there some particular aspects that you can point to right away and say, "Man, I'm glad we've done that because it's led to you know A, B, or C."
0: just line code in general, but, but specifically it's been the ability to have, uh, and I believe I discussed this last time is sort of the environmental controls is that we don't have to limit ourselves to, um, you know, either provincial or federal guidelines. We, we, we can go above them. Right. So just because maybe the the feds decide they want to reduce the amount of protection they put on a certain, you know, waterways or this or that, we can, we can keep those, we can keep those, those, um, uh, expectations high in regards to uh, the protection of, of those areas. Um, and uh, in the same way, we can protect our culturally sensitive sites in a way that has more teeth than than we ever could have under, under INAC's control or ESC's control.
1: Uh, let's talk about leasing land. First of all, how much or how many parcels or how many acres of land uh, is available to be leased out to third-party interests?
0: Um, we've, again, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but we've, we've opened a, a large chunk of, of, of our area for agricultural, uh, leases. And we've most recently, um, are developing what, what we're calling a, a business park for, for commercial, uh, leases with, um, three phases that can expand to another area to include, um, like up to 200 acres, I believe for, for commercial type leasing. And that, that, that's been really an opportunity for us that we wouldn't have had in the same capacity before um, because it allows us to compete with off-reserve values of land, right? So before under, under, under the the normal regime, we wouldn't, we'd have to take a hit on, on leasing people. People wouldn't pay us fair market value for, for land. So, and that, that goes to, uh, any encroachments that happen as well from you know highways or railway or hydro is that before land code, we pretty much have to take the value that's that's given. And you'll notice that if if someone was going to put in another set of railway tracks, um, the, the land off reserve would have been paid a higher rate than the reserve land would have been for for that for that use. Whereas under land code, we have we have more of ability to demand a fair market value for that land both for leases and any other sort of use.
1: Yeah. Can, can you drill down a little deeper there? Why is that? Why couldn't you get fair market value?
0: I think it was just stability. Um, the, the land code allows for a process that, that, people off reserve and business people understand that, yes, there's, it's not just the whim of, of chief and council that says that we can be here. Like there's a process, like that's not going to change in a two year election. The next chief and council is going to kick me out of here. No, we've got, we've got processes involved that are all certified and government backed. And, and um, it's something that they understand and they can feel more comfortable with. Um, that's the, that's the one that I, I, I see the, the, the most and Because it's zoned, because we can have our own zoning laws and and create land use plans, um, it just shows that we have intention to use the land. I think we were sort of taken advantage of where people would say, well, this is just useless land, you're not using it for anything anyway. But when we, under the process of getting into land code, we we create these land use plans, Um, it shows that we have long-term long-term goals and long-term plans for it, which again, just increases value. Um, so there's, you know, we're running into a small issue with, you know, someone who's got some historic stuff on our land and I, I can't get into too specific details, but in our negotiations with them for the loan, that for the land that they're encroaching on, um, they're giving us, they're they're with the negotiation. They're giving us a price of X amount of dollars per per land, per acre, sure. and, and what we're saying is, well, we could use that land for anything, um, and so th- that price should actually be be higher. And they're saying, well, according to your land code, uh, this is what it's zoned, and our rebuttal to that is, yeah, but you had that infrastructure there prior to this land code, so we couldn't use it for anything else. So the negotiation it just gives us more weight with yeah. with the negotiation, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, very interesting how that works. Uh so you, so you're leasing some land out to farmers. What kind of crops are they growing there?
0: Yeah, they're growing everything from uh nursery trees um to corn. We have a hop farm out there. Um you know, just just hay fields at times. They do they do rotating crops, but uh it, it really just d- depends. We've had vegetable farmers out there, um hazelnuts uh Sometimes truffles. Um, it's it's been a, a wide range, it's pretty diverse. Uh, yeah it is pretty diverse and, and and again, the good thing around land code is that we can control the the head lease, which means that um, they can't just sort of sublease and we can also control um, the, the pesticides and whatnot that may or may not be used or herbicides, and we can restrict all that um, in the same way that any municipality would. Right. If you're, if you're close in the times of which they're, they're doing things, you know, you shouldn't be, yeah. you know, you shouldn't be doing stuff at midnight when people are trying to sleep. If you're close to a residential area.
1: Sure. When you mentioned, I think light industrial, you're, you're opening up or you're building a commercial park now.
0: Yeah. We're like 90% completed on a 21 acre or 23 acre, um, commercial, uh, park, um, that that's mainly for it would be similar to an industrial park, but we're we're trying to stay away from any heavy industrial use. Yeah. It's really more going to be um, storefronts for like garages or or small businesses that are or manufacturing or you know yeah. stuff that isn't going to have that isn't tr- too intrusive uh, environmentally or. In general, so how
1: will that generate revenue for the band? Is it simply through leasing, like a lease revenue, an annual lease, or is there property taxation involved?
0: Both uh, property taxation and and, and lease. Um, in addition, there's just spinoff benefits. So uh, the, the the park is located very near our gas bar, and so you would assume that a lot of those businesses would would become clients or customers of that of that gas bar. Um, it also by the sheer fact, if that gets developed, it increases the land uh, value in general. So uh, therefore, uh, our, our next phase of industrial park, we might be able to charge a little bit more of a premium for, for the lease lands in our next phase. Uh, job creation, um, there's there's just a number of, of, of great ways for our community to benefit from those. Uh, and some of those businesses may wanna partner with the First Nation, uh, not just lease land there. Yeah.
1: Um- I was struck when I read on the website, I think, you know, if you've got, at the time the website was up anyway, there were 800 or 900 residents, but about 200 people were employed by the band, Mm -hmm. which is, that's staggering, like one in four almost. Is that related to land code and where you're headed economically?
0: Um, I, I think it's it's not so much related to land code. I think this community has has always strives to to employ as many of its community members as possible. Um, you have to dance a fine line between ensuring that you're providing opportunity for your band membership, but also providing tip top service to that same membership group. Um, so sometimes just putting a band member in a seat is not necessarily the best thing you want to have to make sure that all your band members get the best service possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But we want to try to make sure that we're, we're consistently providing training and education and support for our band members to be successful wherever they go, not necessarily working here. The, the, the end goal should not be to have, All of our, all of our band membership working for the band office, but all of our band members working wherever, wherever they are, they're happiest and wherever they can be successful.
1: And as you grow, I'm assuming there would be people who maybe uh, have gone out there to get an education or some career experience and then see what you're doing and then might even want to come back to community.
0: And that's the ultimate goal. I was I was told early on that that our elders wanted us to do that. Wanted uh, the the younger generation to go out in the world and gain their education and their experience and bring all of that home, uh, in order to to help the community grow. Exactly. Um, and with with bringing a, a variance of of businesses and opportunities here through these leases and and other economic development opportunities, you create bigger opportunities for your band membership. You know, not just not just jobs, but possible careers in, in management and, and who knows what other businesses come that, you know, our band members might have an opportunity to to get a job with and uh, possibly a career.
1: Seabird Island is in a gorgeous, a beautiful part of the country. And I'm wondering if that has helped you at all, or have you gone very far down the route of uh, recreation and ecotourism?
0: It's a fine line. Uh, Most of the ecotourism that people want is um, they want to do a lot of uh, fishing on the Fraser, and and uh, there's a lot of camping and and stuff like that. And it's a matter of what value we're going to get for like a campsite versus just leasing that land. Um, and then there's how much traffic that the community wants in and around their community. They, they do like, we're not isolated by any stretch of the imagination. We're only 15 minutes or, you know, 10 minutes from the closest small town. So it's not like we're out in the middle of, of, uh, the wilderness. Right. But still there's a sense of, of, uh, you know. Being being somewhat isolated and protected, so they they like that, and they don't necessarily want to draw a lot of people to it. In the traditional territory, however, so like off reserve and in the general area, we we are this has nothing really to do with land code, but we're in negotiations with the province to play a bigger role in the stewardship of provincial parks, which would then you know allow for a lot of other uh, tourist based activities uh, to to happen in our in our area under our under our control or under our guidance.
1: Is there, um, what was the next question I was going to ask you? Oh, yeah, I assume, I mean, there's a a great network taking place across the country, and you're approaching, I think, 100 communities that will have ratified Mm -hmm. the land code. and, And you've been involved for a while. What do you make of the growth and the increase in interest in the land code process, getting out from under the Indian Act?
0: I think it's phenomenal. Um, I think that uh, the the more communities um, that that can benefit from being control of of their own of their own lands is is great. Um, you know with 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 a cautionary note, um, you know you do have to have you do have to have the capacity to do it um, because. A lot of dangerous things can happen um, if you if you're not if you're not well prepared for it. You can have leadership that may make um, poor decisions without the oversight of another body, or uh, you may have a change in leadership that uh, underlying code they're allowed to make decisions, or maybe they just decide not to follow the line code. At uh, which case, they're they're opening themselves up to sort of you know liability. But again, there's not necessarily an overarching body that's going to um, get that community back in line. Mm-hmm. So you really have to have the capacity to, to manage it if you're going to, if you're going to go into it. And there is a, and that's where the, that's where the LABRC is doing a very good job as well as they're trying to get out more education pieces. They, they deliver courselets there. They provide constant support to the communities to make sure that their capacities are always growing. But, um, it, mm-hmm we're growing so exponentially or so quickly that it's hard to keep up with the demand for that education and training, right?
1: Even things like model agreements and templates that bands can consider and modify to suit their own particular needs.
0: And we have a, we have a library of that kind of stuff, which is, which is great. The RC, the LABRC does a great job of providing all of that. Um, you know even even down to um, and the what i like about it is that it's a community is that um, communities that politically maybe haven't always agreed with each other um, through through land code they're working in partnership to develop uh laws and policy and stuff around protection of their lands so you're seeing relationships form that have been have been damaged previously politically but but from a an administrative and land protection piece, they're they're coming together, so it's it's a really neat thing to see. Mm.
1: Now you were, I think you served one or two terms on council, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Was that back during the ratification period?
0: Mm, no, it was after it was ratified. Okay. So, um, yeah, but it was it was close to it. I was I was one of the early members, not the first members, but one of the early members of the lands advisory committee. Um, for Seabird Island that was prior to me um, becoming a board member for lands advisory board. So, um, and I, and I I got onto the committee because if I was, if I'm going to be completely frank with you is I actually voted against land code when it came through Seabird. And uh, I did that just because I didn't feel like I had enough information, and I and I didn't feel comfortable with the decision. Um, I was scared to uh, to get to to leave that uh, uh, leave Inax sort of system uh, is is as broken and, and as broken as it was. It was a system that we knew, right? Exactly. Um, so I decided to get on the committee. If we if, so once it got ratified. Um I decided, well, if we're gonna be a part of this, I need to know what it is and, and, and how it's gonna function. So I, I got on the committee.
1: Yeah. Was it a strong vote in favor?
0: Uh it's strong enough, yeah. Like yeah. there wasn't a lot of a lot of negative votes, I don't think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think the thresholds have changed, in fact, over the last number of years, yeah. right? The percentages right. required and and all that. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, I'm not sure. I think the I think the rationale behind the the changes on that was just that for a lot of the larger communities and a lot of the communities whose membership maybe lives off reserve, um to try to get that that amount of of membership to to vote was nigh impossible. and a lot of time and effort and money was being spent on those situations that you just couldn't you couldn't get those numbers. Yeah. so yeah.
1: Uh, communication is always critical in consultation, and without that, I think you you, you were probably dead in the water. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you remember at the time how information was shared, and and how some you know frequently asked questions were dealt with, or how myths were overcome?
0: I find that um, and I can only speak for Seabird and I I, I think other communities may also have this is sometimes there's this distrust of the band office and or leadership no matter who's in um, there's a segment of the population that doesn't trust it and if that's the case you're running into situations where there's misinformation and and all of that and with Seabird what I think the rc did which which was innovative at the at the time was to just like i think i mentioned earlier is to have these family family group meetings where they would gather a group of of uh you know a larger group as they can to allow people to speak in in an area that they felt comfortable sometimes if you get people in in an entire band meetings you'll have a few dominant speakers and other people will not not make their opinions known or not ask the questions but you speak to them in their own home, home around their family you'll get a more frank honest discussion with with real questions that you can you can sink your teeth into and explain the process to that's them that's
1: a great idea yeah i'll, I'll recommend that to a, a community not far from here that's now in the developmental phase and that might mm-hmm. might come in handy to in their case. It was really
0: beneficial and, and it's important that you have the, the RC staff there to navigate and then your local champions, whoever that happens to be. Um, and, and uh, you, you go around <clears throat> and I've been lucky enough to travel to a number of the communities within the province who are, you know, in the stage where they're about to go to referendum and, and do the votes and they'll ask me to come and speak to them about, you know, the pros and cons and, and all of that. And, and, you know, you give them the opportunity to speak in a way that they feel safe. That's how you get that information to them. Sure.
1: Uh, quite a few communities apparently are on a waiting list to get into the land code process. Mm-hmm. What What's general advice, I think, just in closing, what general advice would you give to somebody who's uh, thinking about this and weighing weighing the options?
0: If you're weighing the options between uh, the INEX system and land code, Again, ask yourself the question that I asked myself is, how's the I-Nexus or the ES system now? How's that been benefiting you? Um, ha- has there ever been a time where they they enforced uh, an environmental infraction in your in your community? Has there any been a time where they they genuinely helped out with with you know some of the things that were that were going on for you in a timely manner? Um, and usually the answer is no. And the second question is, is does my community have the the capacity, to, to manage its alliance lands um, uh, not just uh, educational capacity but financial capacity because although there is a budget that comes down from uh, Lens Advisory Board Resource Center and the federal government to help staff and fund this, there's a lot of hidden costs that you need to be able to have to be able to manage and one of the big things we're talking about now is is enforcement across Canada and how do we enforce these land code laws in a way that makes sense you talk to any municipality when they try to enforce their by, their bylaws and the ticketing system does not pay for the staff it just mm-hmm. doesn't so and not only that in our communities we don't want to be ticketing our, our community members right so how do we pay for the 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 monitoring of our of our land code laws uh, within our communities mm. Very instructional,
1: yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we'll have some listeners who are going to come away with some great content. Those are super ideas, and uh, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been enlightening, and nice to hear how Seabird Island has come down this land code route. Thank you very much, Jason.
0: Thank you very much for the time and the opportunity again. Thank you.
1: The Land Decolonized Podcast is brought to you by the First Nations Land Management Resource Center and is supported by the Lands Advisory Board. For up-to-date information on the land code, including governance tools, training materials, and much more, visit LABRC.com. That's LABRC.com. I'm Richard Perry. Thank you for listening.